Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Kate Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim was a guest on the Remote Ruby podcast, talking about his history as a Rails core contributor and the creation of Elixir. He talks about LiveView, distributed programming, NX, and lots more. I just thought that could be a good episode to share with any friends you may have that you want to introduce Elixir to, as it would be a good introductory, here's why you should be interested and care about it kind of podcast and way of talking about it. There's a new image processing library called Image. Real basic name there. (laughs) Actually kind of surprised that was available on Hex, but cool. We might be able to find that one. Yeah, yeah. Image, yeah, search. Okay, image. You found it. All right, that's it. Uh, Leverages libvips through uh, NIF bindings. If you haven't heard of libvips, think of it as an alternative, slimmer version of image magic. It's kind of a rebuilding of image magic. And so here's a a quote from Kip, the maintainer of image. says, in a very simple image resizing benchmark, image is approximately two to three times faster than Mogrify, and for context, Mogrify is using image magic, and uses about five times less memory. So that's pretty impressive, pretty cool. That's not, you know, a quote against Mogrify. That's a that's just comparing the underlying libraries here, libvips versus image magic, really. So who is the author? Kip is the same person that maintains the Money and Elixir CLDR library. So incredibly helpful, incredibly knowledgeable person. So this is going to be a good library. This is how I know, because Kip is the one that made it and maintains those other libraries. So if you're looking for an image processing library, consider image. So a couple of months ago, we talked about a repo with a bunch of Elixir code smells It was documenting common bad practices and recommending better approaches or alternatives. Well, recently they came out with a live book notebook. So now you can run those code smells on your machine and just see how smelly they are for yourself (laughs) firsthand. We'll drop a link in the show notes if you're interested. And there's a project called Lightstream that I just wanted to talk about. It's an open source library that makes SQLite tenable for full stack applications through the power of replication. This is a really interesting idea. The idea that we're all accustomed to here in the Elixir space is you have multiple Phoenix servers that all connect to a single Postgres database or MySQL, but it's a single database. That's called the N-tier approach. This idea is that each server could have its own SQLite database and through replication of the journal through a external source like S3 or other cloud backends, they can all be kept up in sync with each other but it's all just using a local SQLite database. So it's a very interesting idea. It challenges a lot of the assumptions that we currently think about with our traditional way of building software. And Ben Johnson is the creator of Lightstream, and he was recently hired by Fly.io to work on Lightstream and see how far it can be taken in a context like Fly, where it's globally distributed and your application is spread out everywhere. We have a link to the blog post that talks more about the history of databases, SQLite, and the Lightstream project and how it works. Hopefully, we can get some more insight as to how this can help our Phoenix applications in all sorts of different contexts. I'm super pumped about this. I'm very much looking forward to it. Not that I dislike uh, Postgres, quite the opposite. I love it. But this idea is just really interesting. I, I love the thought of it, of keeping the database close to the application. That's what makes Fly unique, in my opinion, right? 
And you're right. It challenges a lot of how people just assume how to build software. You got that single source of truth, which is the database. And we just architect around that idea. And I guess this is like one of the first times somebody has like challenged that idea. I'm really curious to see how that's going to go. And if I recall correctly, I haven't used it recently, but I think Ecto already has a compatible, you know, SQLite 3 database adapter. So I'm curious to see how this can affect uh, Phoenix applications and Electra applications going forward. I think the next item, David, I think you have to tell us about this one. What is this? Something big happened. <laughs> Something quite big. Yeah. I have a family. Uh, I've had a family. I've Now I have an, an additional baby to, to add to the family. So I'm a father of, of two now, a, a little boy and a little little girl now. So yeah, life's, life's going to be crazy here soon. Uh, well, it already is kind of crazy. <laughs> it's going to get crazier. <laughs> thankful to my employer that's going to give me a, a good a good stretch of paternity leave so I can you know man, manage the house <laughs> and try to figure out what our new routines are going to be like oh I'm looking forward to it and lastly we just wanted to mention that our next episode will be our 100th episode and it will be where we have the opportunity to talk with Jose Valim and it'll be our final visit in our five-part series where we lead up to Elixir's 10-year anniversary so we will be talking about some of the new features in the latest Elixir releases. So you want to make sure to catch that one. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Michael Davis. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been listening to a couple episodes of the podcast, and uh, I'm a fan. Awesome. Well, we are excited you could join us because you've been involved with a project called Slipstream. And I was very interested in seeing this because I'd played with previously some of these different libraries that do something similar. So we'll talk about a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish here. But it's the idea of that I could have my own Elixir application that becomes a subscriber to a Phoenix channel on another server. It's like the thing that happens in our browser when we're doing live view, I can be my own backend Elixir application doing this. And so I connect up all these different apps. So it's a really cool idea. I love it. But you've also been involved with a lot of other things in the Elixir community, which we certainly want to hear a little bit more about. But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Uh, yeah, so I live in the Windy City uh, in Chicago in the States. Let's see, I'm a major cinephile. I love open source and I'm the maintainer of an open source text editor called Helix. I've been using Elixir for a couple of years now. And the funny story with that is that I started with Clojure as my first functional programming language. And Clojure is a, is a functional lisp on the JVM. And the first time that I stepped into Elixir and started reading through some of the books, it really kind of broke my brain that you could do functional programming without a lisp. I didn't really understand how that worked, but... Now you'd be hard-pressed to get me to work in any other language. That's cool. So what was your background previous to functional programming? Uh, yeah, so it was mostly at school, going for a computer science degree. So definitely a lot of uh, very old-school Java and then a little bit of JavaScript as well. So interactive stuff and I think maybe a little bit of Arduino stuff along the way too. So very Java-like, C-like languages all before that. And so the functional jump at first was a bit strange. But once I got into it, I was like, oh my God, I can't go back. There's no way. That's awesome. So it looks like you work at NFI Brokerage. I've been hearing that around, especially as we get into the, the Mint WebSocket. I was curious what NFI Brokerage is and what you guys do there. Yes, yeah, so I'm a platform developer at NFI Industries, which is this American logistics company. And it's kind of multifaceted, but the 
big subdivision that I work in is the brokerage. And the brokerage is something where you have customers that give you freight, and then you have to go find capacity to move that freight. So we do have other things like a dedicated fleet, so we could move freight ourselves. But for brokerage, it's specifically focusing on finding trucks and trains and any sort of thing like that to move your freight for you. So a platform developer is this kind of very vague role that I think means something different almost anywhere that you hear it. But for us, it's this kind of hodgepodge role where you you might be working on infrastructure, you might be curating some virtual machines or Kubernetes or something along those lines. You might be greasing the gears of something ops related, like setting up an auto deploy pipeline. But the work that I most enjoy doing is working in Elixir, so writing libraries and frameworks. That's that's what I like to spend the majority of my time doing. Well, I saw recently that Jose Valim credited NFI Brokerage for bringing even more contributions to the Elixir community. And namely, he mentioned TreeSitter, Mint, which we just kind of mentioned there, and GenStage even. So I'm curious about what's going on there. I hadn't heard about that before. In our backend, we use event sourcing and CQRS and DDD. And so our, our primary database that we're using most of the time is this thing, event store DB, which you may have heard of if you've checked out commanded or something along those lines. It's kind of like an append only log where you can put events in the stream. And in order to consume those events, you'll be writing consumers in GenStage. So we have a couple of libraries for a client library for event store DB and then also GenStage wrappers around those. And that ends up working out really well. So GenStage is like the perfect tool to use for that. Mint along those lines as well. The actual the client library that we have for Event Store DB uses Mint under the hood. So it's a gRPC interface, and gRPC is kind of a lot like WebSocket. It's a kind of thin specification over HTTP. And so Mint is the perfect tool for building a client where you have this really fine-grained connection. You can control the retry behavior and any sort of details that you need. So that's, yeah, that's Mint and GenStage. And then the last one, TreeSitter, that's a little bit of a passion project of mine. So for the last couple of months, I've been really trying to get into TreeSitter. And it's this cool framework that came, I think, originally out of GitHub for building very efficient and fault-tolerant parsers for programming languages. And so there's one TreeSitter Elixir under the Elixir Lang organization, and it parses Elixir. And it's pretty suitable to be used in something like a text editor. So the text editor that I maintain, Helix, uses TreeSitter for a number of things like syntax highlighting and text objects and things like that. And actually GitHub uses TreeSitter Elixir as well now. They use it for syntax highlighting. So anytime that you pull up an Elixir snippet on github.com, you'll see the syntax highlighting done by TreeSitter. And code navigation as well is what I, that's my little claim to fame within TreeSitter is that I wrote the tags queries. So the tags queries let you pattern match against the syntax tree that you've parsed and say, this is a function, this is a call, this is a definition, this is a reference. And when you want to go and see where a function that's being called was defined, you can click on it and jump to the definition and any of the other references. That's a really cool, very generic framework. That's awesome. We covered that recently in the news, just GitHub talking about that and how it came out of the Elixir community as contributions. And so that's that's cool. That's you. So yay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for working that work on that. Yeah, I should also shout out to um, Jonathan Klosko, who was the original author of the grammar. And when I first read through the grammar, oh, I heart melted a little bit. It's just such a pretty grammar to, to look at. <laughs> but I should say that there's also a, a grammar now for gleams. So there's TreeSitter Gleam. And I think that GitHub has added that to their roadmap, both for syntax highlighting, but mostly code navigation as well. Well, I'm excited to jump into this other topic now about Slipstream, and maybe that will end up touching a little bit more on this uh, Mint WebSocket as well. We should probably just touch on that briefly. We'd mentioned this also in the news uh, a couple weeks ago, where you're talking about Mint WebSocket being the underlying library that you used to help with Slipstream 
became officially supported and kind of moved over to the Mint group to be maintained there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Mint WebSocket is WebSocket support for Mint. And what that means is that you have Mint as this functional HTTP client, which is this interesting take on how to do HTTP in Erlang and Elixir. The usual way that you do it is you start with some sort of function that starts a process, and then you pass messages between the processes. And that's a very convenient interface in Erlang and Elixir, but it doesn't necessarily give you the most control over your connection. So a good example of this is something like auto-reconnect. So if you have a, an HTTP client like Gun, it has an always-on principle where if it disconnects, it will try to reconnect. And how you control this is by passing some sort of configuration. But with Mint, you're not given a process out of the box. And so you have to do all those retry behaviors. You have to figure all those behaviors out for yourself. And that gives you this really nice fine-grained control over it where you don't need to make a pull request against Gun, for example, to say add retry back off with some jitter concept that you want to try out. So Mint WebSocket adds on WebSocket support on top of that, and it's the same deal as Mint. It's functional, so you're dealing mostly with protocol, and it's not actually really a client in and of itself. Interesting, interesting. So I would love to now jump into Slipstream. Sometimes I think a great way to come at a library like this is to try and understand what problem is this solving? Slipstream is a client for Phoenix Channels, and Phoenix Channels are a really lovely out-of-the-box tool that you get with Phoenix. So if you're using the base parts of Phoenix, like the REST parts, you're probably making HTTP calls, and those are good because you have a little request and a response, and there's nothing really stateful between the connections. But Phoenix Channels are good if you want to have a long-lived connection, and maybe you want pushes from the server. And so one of the earliest and best examples that I've seen of Phoenix Channels is building a chat app with it. So you can go onto the page, you join the Phoenix Channel, you can send a message, and then you can do some pub-sub things on the back end to broadcast that message to anyone else who's connected. And then they see your message show up, and then you have a very easy-to-implement chat app implementation just with Phoenix Channels. Slipstream, though, is an Elixir client, and so you might be used to using Phoenix Channels from the browser, and that's because Phoenix ships with a JavaScript client. But it also might pop up that you might want to connect to your backend apps with the same kind of long-lived bidirectional communication. And if you're already using Phoenix, it's super easy to just upgrade that to use Phoenix channels, and then you're off to the races. So I know there's already several Phoenix client libraries out there. How is Slipstream different, and why did you guys feel it was necessary to build another one? Yeah, so there are a few that I know of. There's Phoenix client and Phoenix GenSocket client, and we were actually using both pretty pervasively at the time on this little system that we had that was this kind of ad hoc notification framework where we wanted to keep boards of data up to date, which is really just tables of data. And so you could click on a row and do some sort of action to it, and that would update the row. Or maybe someone else could click on a row and update it, and you would want to see that update happening on your board as well. And so we were using Phoenix Client and Phoenix GenSocket Client, and I think around the time that we were interested in writing Slipstream, Phoenix GenSocket Client got deprecated, and I think unmaintained. I think since then it has been handed over to another maintainer. So it's it's back up. But at the time we had some some design notes about the existing clients. I don't know, I don't really want to bash the other projects. I think that they're pretty good and I do like using them. But at the same time, we wanted to kind of start from scratch and focus around a few different things. The main features that we were really shooting for were telemetry support out of the box. So we have a lot of observability stuff in our stack that allows us to see what's going on in the system. And telemetry is really, really nice for that. We also wanted a testing framework. So I think it's it's pretty common for bigger Elixir libraries where it provides some sort of tooling to build your own X. 
like Broadway is a really good example of this, where if you want to build a pipeline for consuming a lot of data, then you want a testing framework built into that so that when someone builds something with your tool, they have a nice way to get coverage and understand that the tool works. And then the last thing is that we we're really looking to switch out the underlying WebSocket clients. So both Phoenix client and Phoenix GenSocket client use this Erlang library called WebSocket client under the hood. And we were looking to get away from that because we found some kind of interesting buggy behavior with disconnects with it. I've come across this problem a few times in my Elixir career, or maybe more accurately on the side where like, especially like if you're playing with nerves or something, like you just kind of want to hook up devices to each other and subscribe to each other and do fun little things. Like I was working on a sprinkler project one time and there's one called Phoenix client, which I think was kind of abstracted or taken out of the nerves project. We were actually at work, we were actually using Phoenix client and we just couldn't get like the disconnect logic we needed, or we couldn't get notified that like a channel was disconnected or that you left a channel and you needed to reconnect. There were just all these little edge cases that like, maybe if you're playing with nerves and stuff, like it's fine, but like in production and you have like two production systems connecting to each other, like you really need to know when is it connected? When is it disconnected? When are you joined? When are you not joined? And I need to like reliably have that information. And so we ended up trying a different one called WebSock X, which gave us all of that stuff that we needed, but it was like a fake gen server. So you would, you would do like handle cast and, and handle call. And we're like, Oh, this is a gen server. Let me just call some gen server function. It's like, it just explodes. It's like, what is this? You can't do that. I'm like, wait, what's going on? And then if you dig down into it, it's not actually a gen server. They're just kind of like faking it to act like a gen server. And I think there's something called like special. I had to go look it up. There's something that you can implement in Erlang it has the word special in it. You can put yourself in a uh, supervision tree if you implement a few things. And so it filled the gen servery, but it wasn't quite that. We kept shooting ourselves in the foot because it feels like a gen server, so it's not. And then when we, we came across Slipstream, we were like, oh, this is actually a gen server. It actually works. And then something I wanted to point out too is like, this concept of of socket and assigns on the con as well. Like if you have worked in Phoenix, which you probably, if you're doing Phoenix channels, you've probably worked in Phoenix. So you're familiar with con assigns. If you've done live view, you're familiar with socket and slipstream actually follows that methodology where there's a socket and you can assign things onto it. And it just, you just feel right at home when you're using it. Yeah, Slipstream was definitely very much influenced by Phoenix API, and especially the there's this odd part of developing the testing framework where if you're testing your Phoenix channels on the server side with Phoenix, you're using functions that make it seem like your test process is client. And then for Slipstream, it's the exact opposite way around. So you've written a client and you want to test it. And so now you have to have functions in your testing API that look like a server. And so most of the functions are kind of inverted between the two of them. But overall, you have things like assign and update that are just carried directly over, just shamelessly stolen from Phoenix. <laughs> I wanted to explain kind of a little background on something I tried out. And I want to hear your version of like where this comes from. I tried out a proof of concept of using the Phoenix client library some time ago. And this was a nerves-like setup where I wanted a bunch of devices to be able to connect to each other these devices ran on their own little hardware. So it's like a little army of devices, but they weren't actually running nerves. But we didn't want them to be fully networked nodes because there were just too many. And as you get to the roughly, like the rule of thumb is about 50 nodes in a fully connected cluster, and it starts to not not work so great because 
all the nodes are continually trying to stay connected to each other and sending heartbeats. And because it's fully connected, it can become problematic. So roughly 50 is the idea. So anyway, we were trying to do this. The idea of Phoenix channels is really what I wanted, right? Where I could subscribe and have this hierarchical structure and it was working great. And there was just a proof of concept. That's as far as I took it. So I wanted to know what kind of project, if you can share, what kind of project were you creating where this made sense for you? Yes, we have this interesting framework that we have on our backend, which is not open sourced, mostly because it makes a lot of assumptions about our architecture and our architecture is a bit strange. And so I don't know if it would really apply. We should probably just open sourced anyway, but it's something called haste. And so haste is for keeping boards up to date, right? So as I was saying earlier, you have tables of data and you want to keep those up to date all the time as various people are working on them. You might even want presence features or something like that. And haste goes between a few different services. And so you'll see if there's an update in the database that will be emitted from one service and that'll make its way to another service. And that service will fill it in so that it becomes a full row, right? So it will be custom tailored to whatever the person who is looking at the board is looking at. So it'll have their sort, their queries, their filters, their searches, anything like that. It hydrates all that information and sends that, that little update along. And that's all built on Phoenix channels. So Phoenix channels are a really great tool for that. I think for nerves or something like that, where you're looking just for that long lived connection, it's this perfect tool because it's so simple to use if you're already using Phoenix and other mechanisms, like you could use node communication and Erlang, it might be a little difficult to set up or it might have less observability than a WebSocket is the reason that we were looking for WebSockets in that case. We use Kubernetes and Istio in our backend and there's really great tracing observability mechanisms. And so you can see WebSockets as they go in either direction. Yeah, so Slipstream provides a great tool to use in that scenario. And Phoenix channels are really a perfect tool for that scenario where you want something that's a little simpler. You don't want to have to pull in something like a full-scale message broker like RabbitMQ or Kafka or anything like that. And you just want to set something up that's nice and low resource usage. One of the things I'd like to try and understand is when I, as a user of, of this library, I find this library, I think, oh, that's really cool. Phoenix channels are awesome because they, it's a protocol that sits on top of WebSockets. So I'm not just using raw WebSockets. So automatically that's already cool because I can subscribe to different topics and channels and be receive notifications that are broadcast or individual. And so I try to think of what are other applications of how I could use this? Have you given any thought to that? Yes, yeah, so there are a couple of scenarios where I think that Slipstream fits in really well. One kind of odd scenario is you might want to do any sort of smoke testing or integration testing or even load testing when you have a Phoenix channel set up that's normally meant to be accessed from the browser. So you might have people joining a chat room from their browser, but you want to connect to this with the Phoenix channel, maybe to do some moderation or to integration test or anything like that. More generally, if you're wanting to connect between two services on the back end, a really good scenario for this is anything involving PubSub. So if you have any sort of long-lived connection where you want to bring a message from one node to another, there's one good application of this that I know, Nerves Hub Link, where there's a Nerves Hub server and that has a Phoenix channel and then all of your Nerves devices connect to it using Slipstream and they get updates about firmware updates that can be applied. So did you say that Nerves Hub Link, is that an official Nerves Hub project that is using Slipstream? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think that is actually under the under the nerves umbrella. Very cool. Kate, is there any application or way that you guys are using it or that you could share? We're just kind of doing what he's talking about, right? We have like a server that has data that we need to subscribe to from another service. And so, you know, we just had need to do server to server Phoenix channels, basically, right? And 
Slipstream was a was a good fit because now we have a now we have a client that's on the server, which is just a really good way to confuse words that can connect to another <laughs> WebSocket server, right? So subscribing to events and we we use it for doing a few real time events that are not. You know, not necessarily like you wouldn't want to do your taxes on these numbers that you're getting from the service, right? But like just cool dashboard type stuff where you can get real-time updates like, oh, this thing's happening, that thing's happening, this thing was sold, that thing was sold. Later, we'll give you detailed reports that maybe would be accurate enough to do tax reporting on. But if bits of data here and there are lost because one side or the other got disconnected and had to reconnect, it's not the end of the world, right? So I have used like WebSocket clients uh, by way of gRPC, the gRPC client or the library that's in Elixir. But from what I remember, it uses Gun right now. And if I if I remember correctly, it's still being marked as pre-release or RC or something along those lines. And there were some quirks for getting that up and running if I, it's been a bit, but, but Slipstream sounds like it might help me with that WebSocket story for gRPC or, or at least the HTTP2 side of this, uh, which I know is not Slipstream. But all that to say is, can I use Slipstream? And like, can I use it now? Is it ready for prime time? And does it help me with the gRPC story at all? Yeah, it's definitely ready for prime time. So we've been using it for, I think, almost a year in production. And we were serving, I think when we first introduced it, about 100,000 connections a week. And now it's almost up to another order of magnitude on top of that. We're almost up to a million a week. So that's Slipstream and WebSocket and the Mint WebSocket. And really, I think the only one to be worried about there is Mint WebSocket. I would definitely be much more worried about than Slipstream itself, since Phoenix channels are a kind of thin protocol on top of WebSockets. And I think if we had seen any errors coming up from it throughout this year, if there are any major bugs left, we would definitely have our app signal be yelling at us every day. <laughs> so in, in gRPC lands, I didn't actually think, maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, but you guys use gRPC, but maybe it's unrelated to Slipstream. There's not WebSockets involved there, right? That's an HTTP2 protocol, right? Right, yeah. So HTTP2 is the underlying protocol for gRPC, and gRPC is really just a couple of extra headers and a a generic format for making requests. And so you can have request response and long-live requests, but it is a little bit separate. You can use Mint for that, and so you could have a project that's using Mint for gRPC and then also Mint WebSocket on top of that for doing WebSockets and maybe Phoenix channels. Okay. All right. So that's where I'm going with this. Is that is that something that's like easily configurable, or is that does that require a lot of glue code to get that up and running? Essentially, I want the story to be install gRPC, have the adapters be Mint, and nothing else. Is that easy? Yeah, I think I looked at the repo a while ago, and I don't think it was totally straightforward. I think the Gun is is pretty well integrated into it. But actually, Slipstream used to be based on Gun as well. And so when it first got released, that was the underlying WebSocket connection before Mint WebSocket even got written. And so it is possible to switch out Gun for something written in Mint. And it's not its not too bad. I don't know. I might take a look at, at doing that myself at some point. Yeah, I'd love to help on that. I think I think that's one of the difficulties in getting gRPC up and up and running for, for Elixir that I ran into anyway. And it sounds like you guys have already solved that. Anyway, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, another one of our libraries that we open sourced is something called Spear, and it uses Mint under the hood as a gRPC client to connect to Event Store DB. So that's the interface that they have there. 
And it's not too bad to use that underneath. It's actually kind of preferable to use something like Mint, where it gives you all the tools that you need to write an HTTP2 client, but it's not really an HTTP2 client itself. So you don't have to fight with it over anything like retry behavior and whether two requests really block each other or if you're sending messages correctly. And so it's really nice to use under the hood for gRPC. And I think that, that would be a really good contribution to the gRPC library in Elixir to switch out Gun for Mint. Yeah. Oh, man. That would be that would be great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. You're calling it Spear. Is this a more primitive uh, weapon <laughs> here? What, what's the idea here? I don't exactly know where I get the names for these things, Slipstream and, and uh, Spear, and a number of them closed source that have even wackier names. But Spear is a little nuanced. So when we were building it, we knew that it was going to be based on Mint, and so it was, of course, Spear Mint. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, this works on multiple levels. Yeah. <laughs> While we're talking about names for a second, we were like... I don't know if annoyed is the right name for it because when we when we we put a bunch of effort into WebSocket because we searched for WebSocket we didn't or maybe we did see Slipstream and like when you see Slipstream the first thing you think of is not WebSocket client right and so we we found out about Slipstream later and we're like what the heck how would we have ever found this by the name of Slipstream this is so good I wish we had found it like a week ago so we didn't have to like rewrite all this stuff <laughs> Slipstream man. <laughs> Where is that? Where does that even come from? Oh, I don't even remember at this point. Uh, yeah, I think I have a, a random name generator somewhere that spits out my library names. <laughs> yeah, well, at this point, like, there's so many WebSocket clients out there. Like, what do you even name something if you're making a WebSocket client? Like, yeah, WebSocket X is already taken, so I don't know. Yeah, no more WebSocket clients. <laughs> X socket. Client <laughs> socket WebSocket client, not the same as the other client. Very uninspired. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, I wanted to ask, there's a lot of good stuff about Slipstream. Just from looking at it, I saw that there's an implementation guide of like all of the thought process you must have gone through as you were implementing it and, and, and thinking through it. It looked like you, you put a, a huge amount of effort into thinking through this and making it actually good and easy to use. What can you say about that? What are some things you're proud of building here with Slipstream? Yeah, there were some things that we really wanted out of the box for this. So we do quite like observability. And so having telemetry in there in order to capture some some events about when messages get passed back and forth and how long those things take, that was pretty high up on the list. Switching out the backend WebSocket client was also a pretty big thing that we were trying to, to get towards. And switching out initially WebSocket clients was the initial one that underlies Phoenix client and Phoenix GenSocket clients, and then also going then to Gun and then to Mint WebSocket and writing that and making that really nice and finished. Really, the documentation, though, is is probably my favorite part about Slipstream. It was just lots and lots of time spent writing a lot of Markdown, and you really could not pay me to look at that documentation anymore. I'm totally burned out on it, even after all this time, so there are probably typos and grammar errors that I'll never fix. That's not going to happen. And then the testing framework was the last thing. So the testing framework was a lot of fun to write, and the way that it works under the hood is quite cool. So you have two processes in Slipstream. You have your Slipstream process, and then you have your underlying WebSocket process. And so the way that the test framework works is that you just swap out that underlying WebSocket process for the XUnit process, and then there's your testing framework. I mean, if you're interested in how... Michael implemented Slipstream. We'll drop a link in the show notes there. The implementation guide is just a gem of interesting things to read about. Links out to other, you know, articles that kind of explain certain architectures of of how you might build things. Really cool stuff. I did want to talk about the testing for a minute. I think we just passed 1100 lines of tests in our 
whatever we're building with with Slipstream. A lot of tests in there. The testing framework is really great, and I thought it was hilarious that you tested the testing framework. <laughs> that part was quite difficult, admittedly. Those <laughs> tests were really hard to make. <laughs> I saw that there was a there was a PR or something, and someone commented like, "No testing testing frameworks on Monday or something." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we definitely write so many unit tests that it uh, it does get a little boring after some time. What we shoot for on the back end is 100% coverage, and we have this interesting way of doing it where we really don't like doing 100% coverage. We think it's a kind of terrible thing to do, but at the same time, it's really the only percentage that you can use that's stable. So if you add lines and remove lines, you'll kind of move around a percentage, and so it can make it really tough to review a PR to say, okay, I have to go jump down and see where the coverage changed in this to make sure that all the all the new routes are perfect. And so we shoot for quite a lot of unit tests to do that coverage, and then we just use coveralls ignores in the end to bring it on up to 100% for those lines that we just can't cover. So the, te- the testing framework is pretty good because you can go in and you can just say, you're kind of like a server when you're testing it, right? And so you say, hey, connect to this client that I built and I am a server, so accept the connection. And you say, okay, join this thing. It's like, okay, I'm the server, accept that join. And you kind of you can kind of control like, well, if I was a server, I would respond with this join message and it would have this data, which makes testing actually really easy because you say, well, I guess we have like several services that we were connecting to at this point that are via PubSub. And it's like one of them just sometimes returns a list of like the most recent chat messages. So you can kind of like preload prior chat messages that have been happening. And so then that made it really easy to test that. It's like, well, if I connected to the server and if I was the server and I gave you five messages, then you should do this thing with those five messages. And you kind of, you don't have to mock things. You don't have to like, you just, it's all pre-mocked, I guess you could say. From my standpoint, I would be proud of the testing framework. It's really great. It's awesome. It's easy to use. So good job on that. It sounds like it's set up a little bit like live view testing, where you're kind of both the back and the front end, and it's process driven like that. Does that sound analogous? Yeah, we do use Live View as well in our backend, and actually the the framework that I was talking about earlier, Haste, involves Live View. And so when you're pushing things all the way from backend to another backend to another backend to the front end, that's uh, that's what goes through is Live View. And so having some experience testing Phoenix channels on the server side, and then also testing and using Live View, those were pretty big inspirations for Slipstream's socket test module. I'm curious, do you guys use Live Book at all? We're very interested in Livebook, and I think one of the things that we really want to use it for is documentation internally. So having a nice web page where you can go through and try out different things and kind of hack on on a library's interface seems really good. We don't use it a lot yet, just we haven't found the right scenario for it, but I do really want to use it someday. I figured I would throw another buzzword in there just to see where, where you guys were on that. <laughs> I cannot ignore the amount of contribution that you have also made to the community that is one of those things that you, people aren't going to go look for. It's it's a very specific thing. It's it's the tree sitter stuff. And I think we touched on it maybe earlier, but tell me how you got into that. And, and let me let me set it up for you know every, everyone else too. Is tree sitter is powering GitHub's code navigation now for Elixir, and you helped with that. Tree sitter is also powering my code editor of choice, NeoVim, and and sounds like yours your custom one to Helix. I'll have to go check that out. It powers syntax highlighting there and some light, lightweight code navigation in there too. The effect of like everyday developer experience is you. You know, you you you've contributed to that like in a in a big way. So tell me how you got involved with the tree sitter parsing bits there. 
Yeah, admittedly, it was entirely for selfish reasons. I really did not like the syntax highlighting that I had in my editor at the time. I was using an editor called Cocoon, which is a Vim-like editor, but it's selection and then action. So instead of saying delete three lines, you would select three lines and then delete. But it was using regular expressions for syntax highlighting, which is, I think, what GitHub was probably using before TreeSitter as well. And regular expressions are a little bit slow. They're not incremental like TreeSitter. And they might mess up things where they don't have access to the full syntax tree because it's just a regular expression. And so you would have things like, I think, piping a sigil into some sort of function or macro would always highlight strangely if it was spread out across multiple lines. And you'd have these really weird edge cases that I didn't like. So I heard about TreeSitter, and admittedly, I didn't know a thing about parsing beforehand, but digging through the documentation and trying out a different couple of different parsers and writing a different parser, it was quite easy to get started with it. I don't know. It's it's so much fun now, I can't stop. So I'm like <laughs> watching and contributing to a bunch of other TreeSitter repos, and it's so much fun. Yeah, and, and around the same time, and I, I don't recall if you had a hand in this, but there's also now TreeSitter parsers for Heeks, Leaks, put on by Connor Lay, I believe. I don't know if you've had dealings with him, but he seems like a cool guy. One of the problems that still remains for a lot of other languages, it's not unique to us, is anything that is embedded. So EEX. Heeks, specifically HTML, right? You're not getting around that. Leaks, effectively limited to HTML, though I don't think technically it's live view. So it's like for HTML. But EEX can be anything, you know, and we use it on top of Elixir code itself. We use it on top of HTML. We use it on top of anything um, that needs a first pass with the EEX compiler. And TreeSitter with embedded languages like that, where it can be anything on top, that's pretty difficult to crack right right now. I guess I don't really know <laughs> where I'm going with that, but do you, are we gonna are we gonna fix that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the coolest features of TreeSitter, in my opinion, is this feature called injections. So injections allow you to take a kind of block that you mark as an injection, and you can just inject another TreeSitter into it, and you can do it very efficiently. Where when you make an update inside of this block, it works incrementally within that layer, and then that makes it so that you don't have to reparse the entire syntax tree every time that you make an edit. And so the way that TreeSitter IEX works, for example, is you just have a little parser that says, here's my little IEX token, and then the rest of it is who knows what, and then you've got your response line, and then you inject TreeSitter Elixir into it. And so you don't need to have any knowledge about what TreeSitter Elixir is doing when it parses its syntax tree. You can just say, I'm going to go and inject TreeSitter Elixir into this part of the grammar. And that's how Heeks works as well, actually. So if you have sigil H, you can pull apart that sigil H and say, okay, I want everything inside that sigil H to be marked as Heeks. And that way you have really nice syntax highlighting within your Elixir. So you could have Elixir and then Heeks and then Elixir. And I don't know, you could probably have more layers underneath that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well the, the, the thing there is that you know what it is. You know it's going to be Elixir that you inject. You know it's going to be HTML that you inject. But with the EEX one, you don't exactly... It's it's dependent on like the file extension, right? I don't I don't know if TreeSitter has that kind of knowledge. Yeah, it kind of depends on how you use TreeSitter. So usually there's some kind of token that you can pull apart. So like if you're writing Markdown and you have a code fence and you have that little language blurb right next to the triple backtick, then you can tell what language you want to use. But it's not always straightforward. And I think it's kind of implementation. It's up to your implementation what it wants to do about which language it should inject when it's not really sure. So there isn't something built into TreeSitter that lets you do that but you could write something on top of TreeSitter where you could assume language. All right. Well, I know I know we got into the weeds there and, and appreciate you doing that. But the, the developer experience, I guess that's where I want to end this little line here with you is, yeah, the, the developer experience with Elixir editors, you know, I don't think this affects VS Code. They have their own tokenizer and stuff, but for other text-based editors and now apparently GitHub, TreeSitter is just such a huge contribution. So thank you for that. 
and Connor Lay and Jonathan Klosko for, you know, all, all the other parsers out there. But this is a, a huge thing out there. And, you know, as as the news we recorded this morning, at least, we're apparently the, the Elixir community. And, and, and by that, I mean you are the first community led contributors to code navigation for, for GitHub. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That does feel good to uh, be the successful open source story for what would be otherwise a closed source feature. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to Slipstream, are there any particular features that you have planned that you're working towards? There's one big feature that's standing out right now, and that's a serializer behavior. So what Phoenix channels are using predominantly WebSockets and JSON as your codec. And currently you can switch out which JSON module you use. It defaults to JSON, but there's also a way to swap out your transport. So you could use really any kind of long-lived bidirectional communication stream could be your underlying transport and a serializer module and a transport module. Having that be configurable would be a nice contribution on top of Slipstream. I don't personally use that. We just use whatever is out of the box. So I don't know. I would like that to be a contribution. So with this, are you looking for people to get involved? Is there a good place where people can jump in? Yeah, definitely drop a note in the issue tracker, or uh, I think we have discussions enabled. If you want to drop a note there, I'm also on the Elixir Slack, so feel free to DM me. But yeah, any any kind of contribution is welcome, especially if you want to uh, fix the typos that I have definitely left in the documentation. That would be much appreciated. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just throw in there, I opened up an issue and I, I, I swear it wasn't even an hour and he had already responded and like fixed the bug in the documentation that I was asking for, like... We're talking like Jose Valim level of like response in his in his repos. It's insane. That is what I inspire to. <laughs> to follow on with that, like Cade, when he mentioned this project because he'd been using it, he called out on the GitHub project under your guides, there's an implementation document. And I love this because it's where you go into the background of why you made these certain decisions and where it went. And, oh, we, we chose to do this. It wasn't perhaps the easiest way to do it, but we felt it was important because of these reasons. And I think getting insight into that is really helpful as a user of a library. And I realize that takes a lot of effort to actually write that down and to think it through and, and try and make that clear. Also, props for that. I think it's just a great example that others can take away from that. Yeah, I think I had seen a couple of other architecture documents at the time from similar projects. And I really wanted to have one of those because it uh, I don't know, it helps out with the bus factor a lot too. Like if I get struck by a bus, I would really hate it if Slipstream just stopped getting developed after that. So that's primarily what that's for is bus factor. <laughs> well, I think I want to mention that also just because for contributors, they're able to get a lot more insight into it rather than just trying to have to infer it all from the code itself or have to reach out to the maintainers and say, can you explain how this works? I don't get this. You know, I think that's just a, it's a great resource to be part of the project. Yeah, it's definitely a kind of large code base. And so just jumping right into the code is pretty scary, I would say. So having a nice document like that is a great way to hit the ground running. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online or get involved with the project, where should they go to do all that? If you want to check out my GitHub, I'm the Mike Davis with dash, uh, not just a Mike Davis, just the Mike Davis. You can also reach out to me on the Elixir Slack. I'm in the TreeSitter channel there. You can also check out the NFI brokerage repo on GitHub. That's where I work. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I'm really excited to play with this library. You know, the, the project that I was trying to do originally with this proof of concept, it's something I'd love to come back to that idea. And it sounds like Slipstream really is in a good place to be a good solution for that, for connecting lots of different 
Elixir systems together where I can have PubSub like abilities and just have that with like the Phoenix channels all right there. You mentioned this idea of a uh, automated moderator or even a moderator for like Phoenix channels and like that moderator. Wow, you could have like a little automated thing with machine learning running over there doing the NX thing and like, oh, you can't talk about that here. <laughs> Take that conversation somewhere else. Anyway, I just thought it was really cool. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.